Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 5, where we are discussing all things coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Two outstanding individuals join me this week, so I will hand over to them to introduce themselves. Hello, Phil. Uh, so I'm Sam Langer. Uh, I'm a rugby analyst, um, Twitter coach, uh, still occasional player. Thanks for having me, Phil, and uh, nice to be with you, Sam, as well. Uh, so I'm Brian Fitzpatrick. I'm from Dublin, Ireland. Uh, uh, I own my own business, BF Sports Analysis, and I am also the analyst. Uh, Sporting Union and Jet West France. And just as of this week, I finished my last exam for MBA, uh, an MBA. So hopefully, I will be a master's of business administration in a few months, uh, providing results go all well. Uh, and previously worked with Brush and Poland Rugby as well. Gents, thanks for having you on. Uh, yeah, Fitzy, fingers crossed that you, uh, you, you've nailed your exam, mate. I appreciate you. Uh, you've been focusing on other things other than the podcast. I'm disappointed it wasn't the highlight of your week, to be honest, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll live with it. Um, guys, yeah, real pleasure. Just a reminder to everyone listening, check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to the resources that guys discuss and uh, all other resources that I find this week as well. So, um, Sam, we're coming to you. What is it you're going to chat to us about? So, I want to talk about the first two episodes of of the uh well uh, unbelievable tv series bang your brothers um so specifically uh so i was really watching this i probably rewatched it every five years since uh it came out in oh, i guess the early 2000s um so uh in the first two episodes that there's no um there's no real fighting uh it's, it's about the training um either in the us or then you know, over in over in the uk um, I, I guess just for anyone who's, who's unfamiliar, it's about uh, follows the the, the 101st Parachute Regiment, um, the U.S. Army in the Second World War. Um, and it's, it's 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 really excellent. It's it's well worth a watch. But um, in the first two episodes, they follow um, the, the companies they're getting uh, trained up by um, uh, Captain Sobel, who is played by uh, Lost from Things, um, and um, he is portrayed. Um, overall i guess as a um incompetent um leader uh essentially um it's quite interesting watching watching it back because um it is true that there are elements where he is he is truly incompetent um and that comes out more in the second episode when they move from doing fitness and um I guess kind of um, discipline. So in terms of just keeping stuff tidying your in your lockers and you know keeping your space tidying, following orders. Um, as I say, just general fitness. Then the second episode, they move over to um, uh, to working in uh, actual kind of field tactics, um, and yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. And in that part, he really lets himself down because he's not any good at it. And that kind of colours his whole reputation because he's seen as um, essentially incompetent um, in that. So, so really good um, at, at all the basic stuff and then incompetent when it comes to actually working in the field. Um, and for me, it brought up a couple of things. So the first thing was um, he is very good at what 
at what he does. So he's seen as um, kind of a little bit, um, uh, is mendacious the word, I think, like, you know, pinky and and uh, really kind of detail orientated um, for the for the first episode, where it's looking at, at the training, the basic training. Um, but he gets the results and he, um, his company leads all of the companies in the, in the Airborne. Um, and he is, you know, excellent at what it is that he does. Um, and then, and I think that's that's obviously that's in the in the show. But initially, when I've watched it for the previous, I guess five or six times, that, that hasn't come across. And it's only really the last couple of times when I've been coaching as well, where I thought actually, you know, if that guy stayed in his lane and if he kept doing what it was that he was good at, then he wouldn't be seen as the incompetent person that he is i guess across the series um uh, and it was interesting actually to, to look at that because from a coaching perspective um you know is it is it okay to be um disliked if you are getting the results you know how important is it to be liked so for example he could have uh dialed back on the on the training load and on the uh, attention to detail and being liked more but possibly, I can't say obviously definitely, but possibly um, the results will have, will have slid as well. Um, and then when it goes into the second episode, he is truly you know, useless uh, at, at, at the next stuff he's meant to do. Um, and that's when it all kind of falls down. And so that struck me as quite interesting from a coaching perspective of, you know, it's okay to be really good at the things that you're good at. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to then kind of go and do something else and show yourself up. Um, so, for example, I'm very aware as a coach um, that my focus is uh, is attack, um, and I guess on the flip side is is, is defence and but you know skills as well. But I'd be very happy working on attack and working on skills. Um, and so, when it comes to set pieces, that's when I need assistance and so i think one of the things that comes up is he he would have been kept sober would have been fine and would have been seen as as okay had he gone look this isn't my wheelhouse i need i need some help here to to get better at this um and so i think that was the that, that they were that my kind of key takeaways and and it was interesting i was watching this just before you you got in contact actually and i was thinking i wonder what you know, uh, this is kind of filing some stuff in terms of my my coaching and looking at other people's coaching as well, where, you know, you see people get promoted possibly to a level where they're no longer doing the thing that they're good at, um, not just in coaching, but in life as well. Uh, and you think it would be great if more people could just say, look, I'm an elite skills coach. You should pay me more money, but you don't need to keep giving me more responsibility because actually what I am is a is a really good skills coach. I love that, mate. I think you've taken something which is, yeah, may, maybe slightly abstract and, and turned it into a, a rugby thing, which is brilliant. So, um, uh, yeah, I guess there's there's a couple of things there. Like how, how do you stay in your lane if the resources and structure of the environment you are in don't enable you to do that? So, it, you, as you say, you might be really good at skills. Actually, the club you're at, whether it's, you know, professional, semi-professional, amateur, if you don't have that help how how do you go about managing that because I, I genuinely think that's probably an issue that 
95, 98% of coaches in the game probably have. Like we'd all love to have four or five coaches all doing their different things. And, and that brings its own challenges, I guess. But actually, how how do we cross that um, that bridge when we potentially just don't have the, the resource or the finance or the the opportunity? Yeah. Uh, so go on, Brian. Yeah, it was, uh, just that one I have thinking, like just from, say, I coached university DCU back home, and uh, like you're you're limited because you're actually the second choice team for a lot of guys who play on a Saturday with a club. Um, but I think it's an interesting point, like because we like it was me and Evan Dixon was the other coach. Um, what like you know we decided right we're really not going to do lineups. Um, just to like playing particular Evan's strengths, he was he was back uh, back as attack coach sort of thing, and like we just tend to be good at one thing, not every and like compared to coming in edge and that probably does feed into Sam's thing of you probably do have to in the line out but can you do it at 10 minutes at the most superficial level uh, every two or three weeks if you're in a university social not social team but uh, large presented social and um, well I think that's probably sorry Sam you're probably thinking the same thing but that was sort of what went through my head you can't specialize how you coach, I suppose, and how you deliver. Like, I just do an analysis, but I know I'm good at analysis. So when coaching, I do try to bring it in. I try to use um, video and stuff like that because I know other people do it that well. Can I, is there potentially another strength that I don't have? Uh, yeah, loads. But, um, I suppose I just I strength more than I try to hide the weakness, really. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. I think, um, so... I guess there's, there's two things. One thing from my own coaching experience, and one thing actually back from Bangy Brothers. But um, from my own coaching experience, I think um, so. I've I've been at clubs where I'm head coach where we haven't got much support aside from that, and so that's difficult, obviously, because it, it's hard seeing. Yeah, it's impossible seeing everything. Um, and one of the things I've always pushed is that we should be kind of self-analyzing. So if you if you drop a ball. Um, I know that I think I think it might be you treated this a few weeks ago, Phil. It really got me thinking, which is the whole: is it unlucky? Like if you drop a ball and and people say, "Oh, tough luck," is that actually what it is? And my my viewpoint, I guess, is well, hopefully a little bit nuanced, which is that it's so easy to go to to go, "Oh, unlucky, unlucky." But do we actually learn from that? But then there's the the side part is. You don't want every single mistake in training to be a, a, a like um something that you have to break down and critically analyze and, and digging into kind of a million different pieces because often it's as simple as oh i just didn't get my hands up or i was thinking about something else or um uh we were meant to be in lines of thought uh, and i thought someone was stood in front of me but actually they were stood to the side of me and so i had to get going late and then because i was late um the the pass was flat but i wasn't there and it's partly on them because they didn't listen to my call but it's all partly on me because i didn't get organized quickly enough um and so what i take away is is when i was playing and, and when i started playing senior rugby um we had a really good coach um, and he was a player as well. And I remember um, one specific moment from there where um, we were, we were defending next to each other, you know, just a game of touch at the, at the end of the session. And um, he was, 
uh, he he was on the inside of me, and I was on the outside, and the ball was moving outside. And um, he said push, and I thought, no, I I can't do that because he's he, I don't think he's going to make the tackle on the inside. Um, so I held, and then the the ball went, and I couldn't then get a class. And he said afterwards, not a not big shouting ball, but he said, look, just just do the thing that I say because if I'm if I, I'm the one who looks stupid if I say push and and I'm left myself exposed. Whereas um, if you don't push and I've said it, then you look stupid. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I've tried to instill is that instead of just going, oh, tough luck, like that's the instinctive thing. And I don't want to get rid of that because people just say that it's, it, it would be ridiculous to try and stop that from happening. But if, if each time we drop a ball or we make a mistake in D or whatever it might be, if each time we do that, we go, okay, just very quickly, five seconds, what was it that I did wrong? then that'll be the big focus thing this time and and you'll focus more than keeping your hands up or communicating more or staying deep or staying flat, whichever whichever way uh, is best. Um, so that was uh, sorry, that was a quite a lot of waffle. But in terms of uh, in terms of the staying in your lane, I think if you don't have the resources, what you do have is is players. Um, and you will have someone who who actually knows what they talk about when it comes to say lying outs or scrums. And I think you need to educate yourself to be better. I, I don't necessarily think it's, I don't necessarily think it's good enough to kind of say, oh, I'm not an expert at this. So I'll leave it to somewhere else. I think it, I think you can always learn little bits, and you can kind of, you know, just watch a really good lying out on a loop on a, you know, gif for lying out, and just watch it on a loop and go, okay, well, what are they doing? Like, where's the hand placement? Um, where do they start from? Where do they end up? What can we do that would improve our situation? Um, and although at most levels that most coaches are coaching at, obviously is, is grassroots or youth level, where you know the one percenters make much less difference because you have like a thirty percenter that you can improve on. Um, I think that if you look, if each week you're making just a little step forward, if each week the the second row is going a little bit higher up in the air, um, or each week your your mole off the line out is getting a little bit quicker to set. Um, then that will infuse the the players and will will get them better. Um, and the Bang Brothers point was um, one of the things that I think is frustrating in the second series is that Sobel has um, a major or Captain Winters at that point I think or maybe at the end um, who is uh, what's his name the um, the ginger actor I forget what it's, what it's called now but he's been in a lot of stuff. But um, uh, at that point he is an expert at, in in the field tactics. And so in that situation, it, it, it's very arrogant to not hang over to him to, or, or at least not to lean on him a bit more to, to, um, uh, to, 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 to lead that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. Hey, that's that's the oh, go on. Sorry, go ahead, sir. I was just going to say, I, I think that's the key thing, isn't it? Recognising me, and that's the self-awareness piece around who... Who have you got within your environment that does have expertise you don't? And I don't think, I, I think people would respect you more probably by through a willingness to go, this isn't, this isn't where I'm great guys. Like let's, let's use somebody that's better than me at this, because if, if we're about being better or winning or whatever your objectives are, then, then that's going to be a, a more effective way to, to manage that and try and reach the end point, I guess. So yeah, go on Fitzy, jump in. Yeah, I was just going to sort of narrow down that specialization versus generalization conversation into actually a tactic. 
Uh, last year I did like a bit of a study into the webinar on it on Ireland South Pataki's Sly Data and how it changed from under Joe Schmidt to my cat. And like what's ended up happening was I had to get it out in front of me here to remind myself, but in in uh, twenty nineteen Ireland like it was a bit more generic, like the type five and the back row and the backs, they sort of they shared the carrying a lot more. They weren't playing say a one three three one or one three two two but now playing for the most part. Um, and like I so suppose I asked the question in the webinar then at the end and I had it with professional coaches as well which is cool to get their opinion like are we going to move more to the stage where we tried to specialise so under Joe Schmidt Ireland actually in 31% of the carrying and um, with uh, it's down to 20% now from one game each now but uh, both against Scotland but interest are we going to move like, is it going to become more like American football where we have find roles where in defence, you're an edge defender, you're one of the two outside guys the whole time? Like, it does seem to move like that. And I don't know if that's passed down. And does that actually create the game of all shapes and sizes by through that specialism? Or is the game going to move more towards, say, um, you know, props and stuff like that and four second kick? You know, and is it just going both ways where we're just improving at rugby and it's not actually about the generalization and specialization? Is that that's a conversation I actually had on LinkedIn with uh Yasik Wallace there the other day and uh he like we create this needless ER argument through generalization, specialization. I don't think we do because it's evidence across from surgeons to GPs, you know. But um it's just it's also sort of fascinating me every are we both trying to do both or, you know, one of the things we have from the business, uh, the business thing, um, uh, course of doing masters is like strategies, you either differentiate, go low cost and then there's niche as well, but a lot of business could do is end up getting stuck in the middle to do both. And then they don't do either well. You, know, you try to be high quality and low cost. Um, but I'll, I'll shut that back out there. Like I suppose, Sanders, from your point of view, like, is that going to move to more of that specialization of individuals? I don't know, you probably need to invite us from the international, but, uh, or do you think it's going to become more rounded? Okay. Yeah, I think it's difficult because at the moment there's two, well, so I, I spoke with the Scarlets um, and the chat coach for the article a couple of weeks ago, Um and actually, I have a couple of months ago now, but uh, anyway, uh, and they were that saying, with, isn't it? Uh, with uh, um, uh, Guy Flanagan about um, the um, uh, Dane Blacker try against um, Benetton, I think it was, um, for, for the world, and um, they, they were talking, uh, well, he was he was talking about how. They play a, a one three three one, but they're kind of agnostic about who is in which position, and you you kind of fall into the position that you're in um, rather than trying to work to get into the midfield. Um, and then last week I was with Lassing and was talking about this, and they were saying that they have a set plan where the outside player is, it, it, regardless of the player, usually they have a positional uh, setup. So you know you'll have a um, a seven on one wing and a eight on the other wing, and then a, a, a your one, your four, five, and your three will be on in one pod, and your six and two and whatever the number I've left out will be in the other pod. Um, and so I guess there's those are two different ways of doing it. You have very structured one way, and then the other way is is um, 
is less defined, but you have set roles, but it doesn't matter who's in that role. It's just whoever's in that role does that job. Um, and so I think that we will see more specialization probably. And I think it's probably for the, for the best. I think if you look at, um, if you look at something like American football, there's obviously, there's a lot of benefit to saying you, all you do is punt. Like, you know, instead of you don't punt and kick and pass and do something else, you, you just punt and you get really, really good at that. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting, though, is if you compare, say, uh, a punter in the AFL to, you know, if you just swapped him in, swap, you know, Stuart Hogg, say, in, I reckon pretty quickly you would be hard pushed to tell the difference between either of them. And so at that point, you think, well, there is a limit. You know, if I just specialize someone for ages um, and just tell them, you know, let's say, for example, in rugby, if, if all a hooker did was throwing, so they throw the ball and then they leave you still wouldn't you still struggle to really get more than the percentage that we have at the moment so you know really good lying out percentages you know about 89 early 90s i don't you know you obviously can't go over 100 so there's obviously a limit to what you can improve but even even then even if you had a hooker whose sole job was was flowing at the lying out and then they immediately walked off the pitch after they flowing in i don't think you could get much more so i do think that that you hit against a an immovable object where you, you can specialize to a point but if you look at the at rugby players um they are pretty much as good as they as they could be despite doing many other jobs i was gonna say that's, a, that's another uh, principle that's coming to my head that you said that it was law diminishing returns you know where um you know you could spend 10 hours on it during a week but yeah you're right you're probably still gonna you might improve it from 80 to 89 like and then have you spent that time wisely whereas you probably got that first five percent in one hour of training paul o'connell was speaking about that uh i think for the autumn internationals as well like you know the challenge of particularly international rugby is can you it's not about just having the best line out it's about who's the best line out in the least amount is the real competition and then can that mean that you can spend time on kick checks or or whatever else instead um, yeah, I think that's it, isn't yeah, it? it, it the whole thing. Yeah, if you're South Africa and you go into that first test and you spend eight hours a week on the line out, or eight hours, hours that week on the line out, and then you go into the first test and you only have three line outs, then you know that's that's a business. Is that you, you might come against the opposition who really doesn't want the ball to go out of play, and so all that time you spent is it has been wasted. I. And I was just going to say, I think it, number one, it's a brilliant yeah. question. And I, I, I think this is maybe something if people aren't discussing it, it could be discussed a lot more. Because I, I, I think there'd be a huge variety of answers. I, my kind of sit on the fence answer is, will the specialist become more specialist? And will the generalist become more general? And I, I would look at someone like Alfie Barbary and go, like, this guy can do everything. He is basically a centre playing in the back row. So pass, run, kick, tackle, you know, steal the ball. Like, wh why would we want him to specialise when he is very good at doing everything that he currently does? Let's make him better at that. And I I think the big argument about generalisation and not falling into stereotypical, traditional, you know, inverted commas, traps is, is maybe just the opportunities it affords you. If, if I've got 12 players that can kick really effectively, well, how do you defend that compared to mm -hmm. two players that can kick really effectively. I, I think it just, 
and kicking always seems to be the contentious one. Like, oh, we don't want forwards to kick. Well, maybe we do. Like, maybe that's just a, a huge untapped area of potential. And could they be spending their time on other things? Absolutely. As you both just said, you can always spend your time on other things. But but maybe there's some wins to be had in in those yeah little. And I don't want to use the term marginal gains, but I would even say maybe there's some there's some probably big gains to be made in in certain areas with with certain elements and i just think it's about being willing to maybe yeah move away from those those traditional kind of bits so um i'm, I'm conscious that that fitz is on a clock so i think we'll kind of pause that one there but i think that tees up really nicely um fits your your piece and what you're going to chat to us about so we will jump over to you and um off you go yeah so the what i've chosen is a book called the, the only rule is it has to work and about two guys, um, Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller, and they go and they take over uh, sort of like assistant to general manager of a base, and they're both, as they describe themselves, as fat heads, and they go in and they manage to like get sponsorship and stuff like that from the companies that bring in the automated spin and speed rates of how fast the pitcher throws the ball and how much curve on it and all that sort of stuff, and they have like an unbelievable analytic system and it's at lowest level pretty much of professional baseball and like they're trying to bring in recruitment they're trying to bring in how they play the batting order and stuff like that and all manipulate that analytically at the lowest level and it's it is about analysis but really it's about change management the resistance to change at that level it's like you have all this information you know it's right that mathematically it's going to work um, there's actually a coaching tradition that's viewed to change it as well. But, you know, the coach doesn't want to change it. So they have like problems like um, the first thing they want to do is change the batting order. It's like, look, if this guy plays more and this guy, if this guy bats this and this guy bats next and this guy bats next, score cement more runs per 100 innings or whatever. And uh, one guy, like, I actually don't think it's that. Like the two analysts are doing as well, so it's not just the um, it's not just the coach analysts, it's the two analysts um, uh, Ben and Sam who are contentious as well. It's like look, uh, it's not a battle I want in; it's the batting order. I want to win a bigger battle on recruitment or something. And um, how do they go about that? And then he's like, "Oh, we're on a win streak now. We don't want to change anything." Um, and then they lose a few games. Just like, okay, well, now is the perfect time to make that change. So he sends an email again. So, look, I think it's time to change. Like, yeah, I don't want to look like I'm panicking. So we're not going to change now. And it's um, it's just sort of that resistance to change around sort of new ideas and people who don't know baseball or don't know the sport or haven't played at that level, you know, and much the credibility versus the content. And it's a fascinating book around... Um, that change management and then like how you actually try to create that and you have to bang the door <laughs> before uh, you can get something your nose going to work uh, over the line. And the other, so probably the way, probably the things I want to sort of talk about is how you go about communicating the change because I think one of the things they definitely made mistakes when they were sending these emails and trying to be polite through emails. And I just think emails don't really work uh, for trying to change something like think it's just like an update thing you know and the other thing that me between US sports and Europe in general how we use 
people is all the people who may come from having business or economics degrees and their boss is the GM. It's never the head coach. And they sort of sit above our front offices, they like to say in baseball in, uh, in America. And it's, just, it's an interesting dynamic of, even though they were feeding down to the coaches, they were actually a big part of the side, whether they kept them on or not. Um, but they were his boss, in effect. And um, even still, they got the resistance coming from top down. Obviously, you're going to stay feel that same resistance bottom up. And I know this is not, this is from an analysis point of view. I'm sure, it's the exact same for expedition coaches, assistant coaches, head coaches, or directors of rugby. You know those relationships where you work in every direction, in every way. You know, and um, yeah, that's I, I just found it fascinating. And um, it was sort of at the time when Brian Chubb just came out of lockdown. He was like, now people hate. People like, oh no, it's disgrace that somebody could work really hard in the gym and get much better at golf. Why, why can't he just work on putting and be better? It's like, well, he worked hard and somebody else found it a better advantage. Now he's gone from a relatively mediocre golfer to one of the best in the world to be um, making a lot of money. So fair play to him. But sort of my uh, take on it, to be honest. Um, but it's, um, yeah, that's, that's my introduction to that one. So it's just my question is, uh, do you guys have any idea if you've any good to come in with their shoes? But uh, yeah, have you found changing cultures and changing ideas, changing tactics and the resistance you find? Well, I I absolutely love this book and their podcast as well, the Effectively Wild podcast. I've, I've emailed them a, a few times. It's it's it is like the the dream book that we all we all kind of dream of doing that kind of thing. Um, I think for me, um, yeah, one, one of the interesting things is, and I, I, I think this is a very well-known phrase, but I only heard it comparatively recently, like a couple of years ago, which is um, perfect is the enemy of good, which is people refuse to make changes until they are convinced that the change they're going to make is absolutely perfect rather than just an improvement on what they're already doing. Um, and I think that's just, that's, a massive challenge because obviously you can never you know none of us are ever going to find the perfect solution and so anything we do is only going to be an improvement on on or hopefully is only going to be improvement on what we do already um and so i've found that with um not so much with cultural changes but more so with um kind of tactical changes where i want to go about things in a slightly different way and that we'll give it a go and then it won't work and or it won't work initially. It won't the first time we ever do something, it, it will, you know, the ball will get dropped. And so what happens is people go, Oh no, yeah, no, we, we should go back to what we're doing because this isn't this isn't working. And you think, well, how often does the thing that we do work? You know, it's like I, I was at a um I playing a game probably about a month ago now, where it was it was down at probably Sussex two, I think it was the team I was previously involved with and but merged with another team and it was I just went down down to play half. Um and then in the first half of that game, um they both sides had I think six penalties, kicked all of them to touch and mistouched every single one. There was about probably about eight penalties to start the match where they all got kicked to touch and none of them made touch. And I was thinking I, I didn't yeah I didn't say anything but I was I was watching this with interest and I was thinking if if someone taps it 
and they lose the ball, they I, I guarantee that they will go, what the hell did you do that for? We we kicked to touch, knowing full well that kicking to touch just leads to losing the ball anyway. And so I think that there's well, I think there's two things. First of all, I think that too many lower level lower level teams play rugby thinking that it's even remotely the same sport as at the professional level, where there's actually um it's so vastly different that they would get more benefit from from playing a essentially different you know a different version of the sport. Um, and secondly, I think that um, that com- trying to convince and this isn't living answer <laughs> to your question. This is just the same question again, I guess. But trying to convince people to make changes um, is basically impossible unless the thing works even immediately. Or you're already winging, in which case they're like, yeah, fine, let's give it a go. We're, we'll all leg you up. Or you're losing by so much that you think, well, literally changing, we're already losing, we may as well lose in a slightly different way. Um, I think in those situations it becomes easier. But um, I, I do think drip feeding stuffing. So rather than saying, right, we're going to change to a one through three, one system, just drip feed little bit thing and say, actually, okay, no, I want. Um, we're going to play a touch game, but we're going to have two forwards who hang out on the wing and you're both going to wear bibs and you can only touch the ball in the 50 metre channel. Um, and then, then you can start drip feeding that information and then yeah, I guess you can see where you go. I guess that's the, the skill yeah. of the cell as well, isn't it? Like that would be a big thing. I mean, my, at the risk of ask, you know, asking the question a different way for a third time, I wrote down, when do you know you need to change? And that, that's always a thing, I think, because at what point do you stop believing in all the the thought processes and effort and planning and, and knowledge that went into presenting the first thing you were trying to do? And, and I think a lot of that probably comes down to kind of that, that human instinct of you don't want to admit that it, maybe it was wrong and you don't want to admit that it's a write-off and that's potentially wasted time. And, and I, I think that's the fallacy because it never is. You'll have learned an absolute ton of stuff of, well, why hasn't it worked and how brave do we need to be to move away from that? Or actually, again, like how do we need to revisit it and keep believing that that it can still work? I mean, Bath would be a, a prime example of this at the moment, right? Like they are getting absolutely panned in the press, on social media, quite regularly on the field as well. And everyone's, and I, I actually tweeted a guy last night about this and it was, he came back with a really interesting response. And I think it tees into fits of your bit about like, is it the general manager? Is it the head coach who reports to who? Because all I ever see is like people saying Hooper out. And I'm like, but how do we know he's the, if, if whatever the issue is, how do we know it's him? Because what it actually strictly what is the dor role like is is he putting all the plans in place well if that's the case then what's the head coach's role and without you know i'm not on the inside no you know very few people are on the inside and and actually how why do we build the perceptions of oh it's x person's fault or it you know and you can say he's the boss so it, it ultimately sits on on his desk but i'm i'm also going he might be really really good at the stuff that is making it like not worse because they could be you know what i mean they could be being beaten by like 100 points but actually he's clinging on and and keeping all this stuff together and maybe it's other people's fault and as i say i've got no insight into that so i genuinely don't know but i think we see this all the time in and i mean football would just be the epitome of this right oh they've lost the dressing room are they they didn't do whatever the pundits said they should do and it just becomes this mental world where everyone can get fired in five minutes if you win a you know lose a couple of games or or whatever but 
Yeah, so I, I don't know. It, I just think it's a fascinating question that we keep keep probably wanting to ask ourselves. Well, it's interesting on that, Phil, because um, I, I saw someone uh, mention this about about um, Hooper because I, I posed the question when they lost whatever they lost by on the weekend about how um, you know what what is the fix, and someone said um, someone replied to someone else saying um, you can't get rid of the players, so you have to get rid of, of Hooper. Which I thought is quite interesting, kind of logical fallacy that isn't it? Because if you think it's the players, if you think that the players aren't good enough or aren't trying hard enough or or whatever, then how would sacking someone else help that? Um, like I agree, you can't maybe wait. You, you know, you can't in December go, we're gonna we're gonna get rid of all the players and we're gonna play our academy team. Which although they could do that because there's you know relegation, so you know they, that would be fine. But um, you know, you can't realistically do that. Uh, so, you know, you may as well sack the, you know, the kit man. You know, if if you if you think the players are the problem, but you just want some blood, then you know, sack the mascot or sack the kit man or you know, sack whoever it might be. Yeah, or bring in somebody. Yeah, yeah exactly. So <laughs> it's exactly what they're done with that. They need a new defense coach. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yes. But something around that, like, I think it's soccer in particular, they seem to have changed that role now where effectively, you know, there's a lot of managers are complaining now about, oh, the board haven't given me the budget, they haven't given me this, haven't been asked, it's not my team, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think, like, a lot of clubs are just using, I, I know it's probably really harsh, but, like, the manager is now the media guy, you know, who's, who does coach the team but it's like it's the person in the media who does interviews after the game it's their head that's going when things go wrong it's and that's like a little bit of distance the director of rugby and head coach roles sort of taken is director of rugby can sit in the background and then he can make the call on now obviously just different director of rugby fulfilling it in different director of rugby who are much more hands-on and or whatever and um, but it is the guy who's <laughs> whose face is in the media who's recognizing who's the person who's Gonna get the, gonna get the chart like um, if things are going wrong. But QPR used to be the GAA manager and he's a sports scientist at QPR, and like he said, like the head coach role is just like so overstated. Like you're probably making a difference of two or three percent either way, but you get all the credit and you get all the blame, you know, as if it's all you. And well, actually, you know, the committee member who's been there for twenty years has probably done way more effective, effectively or ineffectively, you know, than the head coach can do in a year. Just he's he's a figurehead, he's the guy who, who people cash and who does the interview afterwards. And it's yeah, I think that separation and the identification of what is the problem is difficult. And at the end of the day, a lot of these decisions are emotional and they should be emotional as well because yeah, working in professional clubs in France like the supporters are crazy like and they love the club so much it's so important to them like you know you can't you can't move that it's like the, the whole identity of the of the city of N is attached to the club like and reflects the mood of the city for a week like it's crazy and um yeah so i think it is <laughs> separated even if you wanted to you know for a lot of the time i think um uh one of the interesting things um, I was I was listening to a, a really good um, documentary on the GCN, the the cycling um, 
channel and um they, they were talking to a, a professional um team manager essentially i mean cycling you, you have multiple people who are not necessarily coaching but they will be in the car and they will be i guess a a, a head coach for each individual race um and he was saying that doing his job absolutely perfectly, he probably adds maybe one percent to the performance of the of the riders. But doing the job poorly, he probably takes away thirty percent. Um, and I thought that was quite interesting. In that in that, you know, it's, it's a bit like in match coaching. I think I think outside of in training, you can add a, a lot of value as a coach. But in match, I think if you do it really well, if you're if you're really you know if you give the right talks and you make the right changes and you do the right things during a match, you might improve the team's performance by maybe a percent or or you know certainly no more than five. But if you do it really badly, if you're if you're um, you know rubbish in the warm up and the warm up's got no intensity and you forget stuff and you you know whatever, then I think you can really hamper hamper the team. Um, but I do think that sometimes, um, you know, someone, someone being being good is overstated um, as as well. Um, especially in those, like like you say, buying, you know, that you've got those uh, those football managers now are essentially just figureheads um, and probably do very little on field coaching. I would imagine. I guess a lot of that is pressure and time, right? Isn't it? So you, they, you're in a professional industry. You need to win quickly. You're not going to be able to come out, and it doesn't infuse the the fans to uh, give us five years and and we'll be back to our best. And I, I, yeah, I don't know how you overcome that. It doesn't surprise me in in football that head coaches will just take or managers will just take the whole of a back team with them because you just you're not afforded the time to build relationships with new people. So you've got to you've got to work with who you trust and. I think that makes complete sense. But in the same sense, you've also then got to go, well, yeah, from a rugby perspective, I don't think they're quite, it doesn't feel like they're under the same time pressure in terms of the immediacy. You know, that people are probably given longer, but then it's come back to, you know, when do you know you need to change something? What What is it? Is it is it the opinion of the fans? Is it the board? Is it the stats? Is it the performance? Is it the result? Like there's a lot of things that then go into that mixer, I guess, that, that it's always going to be a balance of and you're never necessarily going to lean on more than one or the other. But but actually, yeah, a retrospective study of some sort looking at when those changes have been made and why and actually what what the balance of that, you know, pie was effectively, I think would be fascinating to work out really what, what is it that led those decisions. Um, yeah. Because there's big risks if you get it wrong, but ultimately, as we've kind of discussed them already, like there's big risks if, or yeah, are you missing out on big opportunities if, if you don't get it right? So um, yeah, probably probably far more questions than um, than answers there, I think. But Can um, I just, can I just make sure just quickly, Phil, because this, this book does have uh, probably the, the genuinely one of the best closing chapters of of any book i've ever read like genuinely and there's a uh there's a bit in it where because these are these are like very low level professional baseball players who i don't know what they get paid but you know it's like semi-professional football wages enough to last them through a summer um and they he was saying that about half the team are people who realize what this is which is they're not going to get they're not going to become you know major league stars they're gonna um they're gonna get 
old in a couple of years, not be able to do this anymore, but they're going to be able to say that they were professional baseball players. They're not going to actually really have to work through the summer. They might have to find jobs in the off-season, but, yeah, but they understand what this is. And he said that um, then the other half are people who think that this is the path to stardom um, and think that this is this is where where this is the first step. Um, and they were saying that that there were if only the people in that second group had realised that actually it was it was the first group, they would have enjoyed it so much more rather than be constantly under pressure to to achieve. And I do think that's true of a lot of a lot of sports people is that. You know, it, it's horrible if you're trying to make it as you, when you're young and you basically, you know, if you're kicked out of an academy uh, at young age, that's probably the chance gone. I mean, not definitely. There's we hear people who who make it or people who um, who've, who've achieved stuff despite leaving academies. Um, but if you understand that that what it is is you could still make it as a semi-professional. You could go and play in Nat One or or even the Championship and and make money and, and understand that that is what you're doing. Then then that's absolutely like that's amazing. That's an amazing opportunity if that's what you want to do. Um, but there is that thing of going, I'm not going to be a star. And I think people who realise that earlier probably play better than actually have more chance of becoming stars. Kind of ironically because they they don't play with that constant pressure of feeling like they they need to um they need to perform i think that's a phenomenal point and it, it probably points to a, a load of other stuff that um that we could get into and i feel like with this has been a teaser just because of time we've <laughs> not really been able to jump into the detail because i'm genuinely you know yeah really frustrated we've just not had that chance to go into more stuff but what it does mean is i'll definitely uh get you both back on and we can explore um a load more of this in way more detail because i do think we've, we've touched on some fantastic things so um just before we kind of round this up and finish it off do you guys want to give people a nudge towards uh the stuff that you do um so sam obviously your whiteboard sessions and, and fits bf analysis and stuff and then also maybe just to mention like what's on your bedside reading table at the moment or what are you engaging with? Like if you're going to recommend something to, to the listeners to go and uh, explore a little bit more other than what you've talked about already, what would you say? Uh, so I think for me, uh, I, I can probably jump towards Fitz's stuff on some of those more accessible intro to stats things, especially if you're, um, if you're a newer to coaching, there's stuff in there that you can really take away some like quick stats wings that you can just collect on the, on the pitch side, so I say uh, the numbers game is really good. That's looking at football, but that's um, that's got some really interesting takeaways. I'm currently reading uh, Hitting Against the Sping, which is all about um, cricket analysis. Um, Moneyball is is really good. It doesn't it doesn't kind of it's not too in the in depth on the on the stats, but that's that's obviously an absolute classic of its of its um, of its age. Um, and then I think. Um, Oh, there's a, if you're interested into American football, there's a book called Smart Football, which is well worth a worth a read. That'll um, get you thinking about the about um, less stats, but more kind of strategy and tactics. Um, but yeah, I think anything like that, even if it's a different sport, it, it, that's basically what got me into this. Is is reading about other sports and going, oh, could could you do that in, in rugby? Fantastic, mate! Big yourself up as well. I love the whiteboard sessions. So where where can people find them? Uh, how can people go about accessing that? Yes, so uh, there'll be one up today on, on Twitter at Sam L Stands Up, but there's also on Instagram, if you search for Whiteboard Rugby, um, 
probably got about 25 of them on there and um on twitter there's a two minute i'll just say the two minute limit on the videos but on instagram there's a couple of uh longer ones so there's one on attacking shape that's kind of a, a 10 minute explainer um but the rest of them are just two minute things so um you know quick quick toilet um uh watch um for, uh just on some explainers uh on, on the b some basic stuff some a little bit more complicated love it top man thank you very much fits finish what are you saying um yeah if you want to i've been a bit quieter on social media through the uh, exams and also immigrating uh, takes uh, time out of your day as well uh, to be learning languages and buying washing machines and things like that um yeah um, i i imagine i'll be a bit more well, i will be a bit more active um afterwards so at bf sports analysis or bf sports analysis it's one of the two one uh, instagram or one of them has a character limit there and the website bf sports analysis and linkedin as well and you follow find me personally patrick on all those platforms and uh, in terms of what i'm reading now i'm currently reading many model thinking which is a uh, much more uh space of starting but around what models to use and the many models sort of side is trying to think of problems from different perspectives as opposed to sorry comes back to phil's thing of perfect is the oh sorry sam said that perfect is the enemy of good and um you know realizing you know if you look at a problem from three different perspectives you know you might get the commander in two of them and then the other the other alternative in the third and it's like okay that probably is the best decision so you look at it from three perspectives and that's sort of where we come to where it's only looking at it from one perspective then um yeah you're only ever going to look at it from one perspective and you limit your decision making or maybe you can go okay we'll make this decision but have x consequence on y you know and um there's kind of a way to think um in terms of other analysis books uh i love the basketball ones i feel like americans um they're much further ahead in being open about their analysis and writing it honestly. and um sprawl is a fantastic book and uh, it's very easy to read as well. The illustrations are brilliant. Uh, Kirk Goldsby used to be a photographer, so he used to make maps, and then he translated that skill into um, sports analytics as well as the basketball court. Fantastic read and easy. And the uh, illustrations, uh, I don't know the illustrator's name, but they're very good. And uh, I'm going to buy if I pronounce the second right um, over Christmas. I know I'm getting another present, uh, the mid range. I can't ask word of it, uh, Sammy might know. Um, I'm, I'm going to be reading that one and yeah, basketball on paper as well is another good one. A bit more old school, but sort of introduced me to the idea of play-by-play analytics, which um, sort of is really going deep on now. And, but yeah, thanks very much, Phil. Really appreciate coming on and lovely chatting, Sam. Uh, appreciate uh, your time and the effort to put this together. So uh, I know it's not easy. Thanks very much. No.
Jen's absolute pleasure. No, I, as I said, I, I do feel like this is a teaser because I think we've we've honestly gone through some really like quite deep uh, philosophical questions as as well as quite practical ones, and and probably not done them justice. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to line another one up. But uh, I do appreciate you guys coming on. So um, I'm going to round up the roundup. Uh, to those listening, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to the guys for coming on and contributing to a great discussion. Links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. As always, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well.